space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. everyone. Welcome to Wild Weasel number five. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back. I didn't make my once-monthly podcast goal this time. Uh, Right around the time I was assembling the materials for this podcast, my father-in-law died after a long illness. It was expected, as he was on hospice care after battling cancer, but family matters obviously took priority for a while. But things have quieted down now and are getting back to normal, and so I'm back. I haven't done much gaming since last time, except to finish a face-to-face game of DNB and Foo, The Final Gamble, against my friend Don. It took us approximately 16 hours spread out over four sessions, and we left the game set up in Don's game room, so there was really no extra prep time between sessions. I highly recommend this game, uh, which I named as my number one war game of all time in my list on Wild Weasel number one. Speaking of lists, I need to finish my top 10 solitaire war games list from last time but I'm going to do it before the news because I have something else to talk about after the news. So let's go. Number five is the D-Day At series by John Butterfield. This series started with D-Day At Omaha Beach and has since covered Tarawa and Peleliu. The situations themselves are kind of static, but the way John creates a defensive system and then challenges you to defeat it feels very thematic and is extremely engaging, and I love his hybrid card counter system. So just like the Carrier Tokyo Express games, um, if I were to actually have to choose between these games, I'd end up putting them right one right after the other. And instead of games by five different designers, I'd have three um, in this uh, top uh, ten. So, I mean, if you really wanted me listing Carrier and Tokyo Express as separate games, and D-Day at Omaha Beach and REF, and D-Day at Tarawa and so on, all separate games, well, I don't think you do. But even if you do, I don't. So I didn't. So let's call the D-Day At series by John Butterfield my number five. Uh, Number four is a game I think of as philosophically similar to the D-Day At series in that it depicts an amphibious landing against a prepared defense. And I'm talking about Raid on San Nazaire, designed by Robert Markham and Mark Seaman and published by Avalon Hill in 1987. It's a more complex game than the D-Day At series and feels heavier because of the separate naval and land phases of the game. The stealth aspect of the mission makes it seem more tense, at least to me, And then there's this whole action movie sequence of the combat itself, which is just great. It's a very mature design for 1987, although it does show some of that area's emphasis on the fiddly. Still, the game itself is a standout in any time, not just the late 80s. So my number three game does what I thought would be completely impossible, and that's construct a compelling solitaire eastern front game that doesn't abstract away the most important part, which is the complexity of the front line. 
Barbarossa Campaign from Victory Point Games, designed by Carl Paradis, is a game that puts card play and chit draws right next to odds and hex-based combat and makes it a thrilling ride through the whole Eastern Front campaign in a way that doesn't seem like a compromise to length or playability, which is a lot to say. Uh, no wonder Carl has a game on my top 10 war games list, which is the two-player game No Retreat. And Carl is also working on another two-player game called Absolute War, which I think is a tie-in to a vodka marketing campaign. But if you want the definitive Eastern Front solitaire game, it's Barbarossa Campaign, and it's my number three solitaire game of all time. Number two um, on my list is one that I really had a hard time not making number one. It's a game about culture and how this culture struggled to keep itself together in the face of foreign encroachment, which is a story that a lot of cultures can tell, frankly. Uh, Joel Toppin, though, decided to tell about the Dine, and thus he designed Navajo Wars. It's not an easy game to understand, partly because the rules aren't the clearest or best written that I've ever come across. Um, not at all. But I love the underlying concepts, and once you put them all together and get some clarifications and rod and things, it ends up telling a tremendous story. I love the way that Joel incorporates the idea of family into the gameplay. Uh, frankly, I think it's one of the most brilliant thematic mechanics I've ever seen. And the game experience is not quite like anything I've seen before. It's an extraordinary creation. So my number one game had to beat that out. And it wasn't easy, but it was helped by the fact that I'm a sucker for situations that are less commonly depicted in games, but to which I can somehow relate. Uh, the Falcons War happened while I was in high school, and it, I was intensely interested in all the military hardware and tactics that went into that battle at a time when that information wasn't readily available. I don't think I quite understood the political aspects of the situation, but nevertheless, I followed it daily in the newspapers and on television to the extent that uh, we could in a day without the web. Uh, Where There is Discord, designed by Daniel Hodges and published by Fifth Column Games in 2009 and has subsequently been reprinted, I think at least twice, recreates this day-to-day -day aspect of the operation so well that I can't believe someone hadn't thought of this already. But of course, that's the case with all truly groundbreaking designs. The game incorporates all the day-to-day -day events, which were so important to uh, the uh, the whole battle and the, just the, the development of the international situation without straitjacketing the whole process, but it also does a fantastic job with the tactical consideration of the task force um, that was so crucial to the outcome of the whole thing. Um, it all hinges on a very tight interaction of the rules, though, and it's telling, at least to me, that when I first played it with a friend, we kind of just dual solitaire it, we were teaching ourselves, we didn't get the international opinion track right, and the game to us, frankly, seemed kind of flat. But we noticed this after the game and went back and replayed it, doing it just right this time. At least I went back. I'm sorry. Um, I did it myself, and I liked it so much that I did it again, so I played it twice. And just goes to show you how you can't judge a game until you actually play it correctly. So there's a rule uh, for you there. So um, that's my number one game, and let's uh, just to recap, my list is number 10 is In Magnificent Style from Victory Point. Uh, number 9 is Phantom Leader from Dan Verson Games, designed by Dan Verson. Uh, number eight is Ambush, a John Butterfield game uh, from uh, Victory Games. Number seven is the Carrier and Tokyo Express games, also by Victory Games. Uh, number six is REF, uh, West End, um, and now Decision Games, uh, designed by John Butterfield. Number five is all of John Butterfield's D-Day At series. Uh, number four would be Raid, Raid on San Nazaire, uh, that's an old Avalon Hill game. Number three is Barbarossa Campaign by Victory Point Games, designed by Carl Paradis. Number two is Joel Toppin's Navajo Wars from GMT. And number one is Daniel Hodges' Where There Is Discord about the Falklands War from Fifth Column Games.
Now, this list uh, leaves out some notable titles, and I thought I'd talk about them. And by corollary, what I value in a solitaire game. So you might notice that I didn't include B-17 Queen of the Skies, uh, B-29 Super Fortress, Patton's Best, The Hunters, Silent Victory, or any similar game that relies primarily on random narrative. And that's not some kind of accident. I don't like this kind of game as much because I'm not primarily role-playing a bomber pilot or a submarine captain, and I find the story that results as the aggregate of a bunch of random event die rolls to be, well, a bit tedious. Um, I didn't I also didn't include any of the State of Siege games, um, because I have to admit I don't really enjoy the State of Siege series. Now, I know that many players do, and it's quite popular, but for some reason, the progress of various tracks just doesn't work very well for me in most of the situations. It seems a little, deter a little too deterministic for me, with the possible exception of Ottoman Sunset, because in that historical situation, there's this uh, certain inevitability of doom that I think really fits that uh, history well. Um, but not well enough to crack the top 10. There are better games. Now, Steel Wolves is another game that didn't make the list because, well, I've just never played more than a turn, I think. Uh, this is a huge game about the entire U-Boat War done at the uh, strategic level, but with almost tactical resolution, um, which is why I've never been able to play it or really know anybody that's, uh, that's done it. Uh, the Pacific counterpart is called Silent War. And both are from Compass Games. Um, I think Silent War is a smaller game. Um, but I, I've never been able to play either of these. I don't have uh, Silent War, but uh, I do own Steel Wolves, and that has not... Uh, I've never been able to really play enough of that to have any opinion about it. Um, so what I really value in a solitaire game is the same thing I value in a non-solitaire game, which is the ability to tell a historical story without being stuck in a historical rut, but with the mechanics capturing the narrative without relying on completely random events. And I think that all of the games in my top 10, especially the top five, um, meet this criterion very well. And by the way, I just should point out that my number five, number six, and number eight games are all by the same designer, who is John Butterfield. So draw your own conclusions. And now, the news. The biggest news of the month is that GMT has added Mark Herman's Pericles to the P500 list. Uh, Pericles is the follow-on to Churchill and uses the so-called conference system to represent the events of the Peloponnesian War. And it has already hit its P500 goal, as the last time I checked, it was at 562 pre-orders, plus one from me is 563. Nice work, Mark! Also, GMT has released their publication schedule. Um, that's as it stands now, I'm sure there will be tweaks. And I'm excited to see several things on it that I've been waiting for for what seems like forever. First, MBT is stated for July. Uh, that's for main battle tank. Uh, this is a modern tank warfare designed by Jim Day, first published by Avalon Hill. And that was done way back when, and it's now getting a very much deserved reissue. Jim Day designed Panzer, which, by the way, sold out and is being reprinted very soon. Uh, this, this month, June, in fact. Uh, on the August-September schedule, then, is uh, Comancheria, or Comancheria, Joel, how do you pronounce that? Uh, that's Joel Toppin's follow-up to his excellent solitaire game Navajo War that I discussed earlier. And also in the August-September time frame is the third printing of Sekigahara, one of my top ten war games of all time, as well as my personal favorite of all the games that are on the P500 list right now, the Silver Bayonet 25th Anniversary Edition. These are, uh, I'm really glad to see all these games uh, coming to market. 
And I also got a notice that Fast Action Battles Golan 73 has charged, so we'll be seeing that soon. Um, I haven't played Fast Action Battles Ardennes. Um, I just really am not interested in any more Battle of the Bulge games. I think I've pretty much burned out on those, but Golan 73, sign me up. I'd love to see how the system uh, treats that. Oh yeah, and uh, Falling Sky Shipped. Congratulations to Andrew and Volko. Uh, mine has arrived, and I'm just waiting to start a Vassal game. Uh, we have our crew assembled, uh, who so far have played Fire in the Lake, A Distant Plane, and Cuba Libre together, all by Vassal. And all of those games were won by the same player, uh, by the way, which wasn't me. Evo, you're going to have to go easy on us this time. And speaking of Vassal, my friend Ross pointed me at a site called ludilog.com, where you can upload log files from your Vassal games and make them available to all the players. Especially with multiplayer games, this is a big improvement on the long email chain method of passing turns back and forth, because it's obviously far more organized, and it's better than Dropbox because you can post comments. And lastly, you can watch other people's games. So if you want to see how bad a player I am, just drop by the little log of our Here I Stand game once we get that set up. It's a neat idea. Um, that's ludilog.com, L-U-D-I-L-O-G.com. That's free. Over at One Small Step Games, their ninth folio series game, Algeria, by Brian Train, has charged and will be shipping soon. This is a game that was published back in 2000 by Microgame Design Group, and again as a second edition by Fiery Dragon Games uh, shortly thereafter. So I think you can safely call this the third edition. Both of those previous editions, by the way, are long out of print. It's hard to find them. Uh, Brian has gotten some new map art and cleaned up the rules. And I did a little bit of playtesting for Brian on this one last summer, so I'm excited to see it finally see print again. I recently ran across a new game company called K&R Games. They don't have any published games yet, but they do have two projects in progress that they've listed, both of which are fascinating to me from a topic standpoint. The first is called Crisis in the Caucasus, colon, The Russo-Georgian War. And the other is Crisis in Eastern Europe, colon, Transnistrian Insurrection. Just amazingly inventive. I uh, can't wait to see what that uh, game is, uh, how it comes out, but uh, I'm not sure when it's going to be out. Uh, at least the subjects are interesting to me, anyway, and you can check them out at krgames316.wix.com slash krgamesllc, or you can just go to the link that I'm putting on the Wild Weasel page. Now, something that isn't a new game or a new game company, but has a lot to do with new games, is systems for transporting games. Uh, I call it game luggage, and that seems to be the new trend in gaming accessories. You can uh, see how high our standard of living has gotten. I found interesting Kickstarters for a couple of these products, one of which is called Game Folio, and another is called Game Canopy. Um, these are different luggage systems with slightly different designs, but they're essentially shoulder bags with padding in different places. Game Folio actually has separate liners for each game, whereas Game Canopy puts substantial padding in the walls of the bags themselves. Uh, unfortunately, these Kickstarters both just ended. Uh, I wasn't able to get this on air uh, in time to let you know while they're going, but I'm sure these will become commercial products, so you'll be able to buy both Game Canopy and Game Folio at some point, I assume, and I've included a link uh, on the Wild Weasel page to the Kickstarters if you want to see what this is about. In the meantime, if you want an idea for transporting your games that's much cheaper and also available right now, my friend Tracy passed along this idea. 
there is a Peruvian percussion instrument called a cajon, which is roughly box-shaped. And because that's how life is now, you can buy a carrying case for one on Amazon, uh, which happens to be just about the right size for game boxes. And whereas the custom game carriers on Kickstarter are running about $175 each, this one is $25 with free shipping. So that's an alternative, and Tracy says it works quite well. And I have a link to that on the Wild Weasel page as well. Revolution Games has a new game, Pacific Fury, colon, Guadalcanal, comma, 1942. Or is it Guadalcanal, colon, Pacific Fury, comma, 1942? Uh, the map and the box don't agree on the pictures that I've seen. Uh, but what we do agree on is that this is a new game from Revolution Games, uh, released on May 9th. It's a quick-playing game about the Solomon's campaign in 1942, designed by Yasushi Nakagura, and that was originally published in Japan, so this is the English version. It has an 11-inch by 17-inch map, 53 counters, and just a one-hour playing time with a $24 price tag, and that's at revolutiongames.us. By the way, I heard an excellent podcast discussion recently in which Cole Wehrle, uh designer of Pax Pamir, which is a fantastic game, I have to say. Um, a little on the Euro side, probably not a, uh, a war game as much, but the topic I think is very much a war game topic. Um, he talked about streamlining and game design in the context of his game and Blizzard's team-based first-person shooter Overwatch. Now, I know not many people who listen to this podcast will be playing Overwatch, although I, I know some do, I know that for a fact, but I highly recommend this podcast. And it's only 32 minutes long, very much in the spirit of Wild Weasel. There's supposed to be a part two coming that will talk specifically and exclusively, I think, about Pax Pamir. So uh, put that in your bookmarks. Uh, I have a link to the first part of the Wild Weasel, uh, first link to the first part of this podcast series in the Wild Weasel number five page. There is a game on Kickstarter called Days of Ire Budapest 1956, which I'm not sure is exactly a war game, but it's close enough and on a topic that's dear to my heart, so I'm including it here as part of the criteria on Wild Weasel that I talk about what I'm interested in. So this is a one-to-four-player game in which one player plays the Soviets and up to three additional players cooperate as different Hungarian factions against them. It probably rides the line between Euro and Wargame and has almost a month left to run on its Kickstarter, but it's almost completely funded. One copy ships to the United States for 53 American dollars and to Europe for 50 European dollars, also known as Euros. And that's from cloudislandgames.com. I'll include a link to their Kickstarter. And that's the news. So for today's talk, I have Jeff Komaves. Uh, Jeff is a moderator of uh, subreddit on Tabletop Wargames, and he himself has been playing Tabletop Wargames uh, for about five years. And Jeff is especially interested in how to bring new gamers into our hobby. So uh, Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here. So tell me just a little bit about uh, how you kind of got involved in things uh, and what makes this, you know, bringing in new gamers especially uh, compelling for you. Uh, no problem, Bruce. And uh, how people come to the hobby is something that I've been very keen on. I myself got into Euro games uh, about 10 years ago, as many people did, uh, Carcassonne, uh, Ticket to Ride, uh, Settlers, uh, a good number there. And of course, I've always been involved in uh, PC conflict simulations, things like Total War, 
But it wasn't until uh, 2011, really, just a few years ago, while listening to a podcast that you regularly participate on, Three Moves Ahead, Mm -hmm. where mention was made of a game downtown that simulates uh, conflict over uh, North Vietnam, air conflict over North Vietnam. That's a historical period that's very interesting to me, and it blew my mind uh, that they w- there was a published tabletop war game hmm. uh, about this, and that I could set it up and look it over and study it and play and get my hands on it. And so from there, I then discovered the in-print title related to that, Elusive Victory. From there, more studies, and I found Hornet Leader, which hmm. you know was yep. helpful because I could then play by myself, right. so on and so forth, and down the rabbit hole I went. Great. Wow, that's fantastic. So um, so tell me a little bit about uh, you know your um, you know the why why are you particularly uh, interested in in getting people into the hobby at this particular you know time juncture well this particular time juncture is just great we're 15 years or so past the euro game and thematic game explosion that got um, recreational gaming into the hands of a lot of people uh, over the course of those 15 years uh, all of us have gotten jobs graduated school started our families etc and as we have matured so potentially have our interests and uh, our tastes so much like my story where you know uh, playing games for about five years on the euro side and then I just needed the right introduction I needed to stumble right across the right piece of information to get into tabletop wargaming. The same is going to be true for uh, any of a number of people that in their 20-somethings pick this up and now are in their 30-somethings and are ready to uh, join our hobby. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, so tell me, I have, I have three questions for you, and uh, I hope that you can uh, bring your expertise into, uh, into play here. So let's say, let's say I'm trying to introduce somebody to, uh, to board wargames. Um, what is the one thing, if you got to pick up all the things that I should avoid doing uh, when I'm trying to uh, get somebody hooked on the hobby? Uh, absolutely. And I would say the first thing to kind of uh, be very mindful of is don't let the rules burden or slow things down. Uh, we have very detailed systems, uh, but that is a, a turnoff, really, for people just getting in. Uh, our 48-page rule books are four times longer than what you might typically get out of a a Fantasy Flight or an ILO release. Mm -hmm. So what's important is people get their hands on the game and start playing. Um, Don't stop repeatedly, look up rules, just uh, get your hands on the SOP, start uh, playing by feel if you have to, but Mm -hmm. uh, start moving through the mechanics and systems, let people experience history in really any way that uh, they can. So what you're saying is that you sort of want to get them uh, involved in the process because the process of war games, I think, is is kind of different from the process of a lot of other games. And uh, you just want them to sort of see what, when you said SOP, I assume you mean standard operating procedure. Uh, but uh, you know, notice... yeah, the sequence of play. Oh, okay, great. Well, that's there you go. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's funny. Okay. Um, so anyway, so the point is that you're just sort of getting people to do things um, that, uh, that you do in a war game, um, you know, pushing things around. Um, and what you you just say that you kind of figure out the rules later, or you just don't, you're not a stickler for them? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you layer them at, as you go and as they become important. What's what's important is to get people started to processing information, doing things, and making decisions, um, even at a very high intuitive level, right? Mm-hmm. In theory, all of these games that we have are abstractions of physical or historical systems. And so a physical or historical intuition uh, should then guide realistic outcomes from these systems. So you don't need to understand what DRM comes from, what elevation to make the right perfect shot. Don't worry about that. 
you're in a position of advantage over me. You probably have a good shot. Let's go ahead and take it. And uh, if you remember three quarters of the DRM on this first playthrough, that's great. Don't worry about it. Don't stop. You want to maximize the uh, play time and the decision-making time and minimize the setup, the rules lawyering, uh, all the things that stop and pause and keep the new player from interacting with the system. And so I assume that you're, uh, one of the things that you're doing is you're um, getting, keeping, you have the game all set up first. You know, you don't, you're, you're uh, just kind of sitting them down at a board. You're not uh, sitting around while, uh, um, while you're trying to figure out which hex is 2712 and which hex is 3815 and which battalion goes where. You just kind of present them with a game and then there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so a little bit of preparation is key. Vassal is great if you've got someone that you're uh, is it willing to uh, you know sit down with you over Skype or play online because mm-hmm. uh, that facilitates all that and it's really easy to start nudging the counters around in a live uh, session. So there's a lot of ways, but certainly preparation is key. Okay. So I have a second question for you. So this is something that I've always wondered. Um, when I myself is, do you have a different approach based on the particular person you're introducing to war games? So, you know, what would determine that approach? I mean, I, there, I know that there are different kinds of people that I try to, I try to, you know, when they give me uh, some indication that they're interested in trying out a war game, I kind of have to kind of pin them and figure out uh, how I'm going to approach it. Do you, what do you, what do you kind of use to do that? Do you, their historical interests, just, just the personality or personal background or what, what, what do you, what do you go off of? Well, I have to say that, that you're absolutely right, that a one-size-fits-all approach does not work when introducing people to the hobby. Um, usually, we're introducing uh, friends or acquaintances or people that we're having some discussion with. Occasionally, you know, you're, you're set up at the local game store and some guy just drops in, right? So, you know, that you're not going to have any information. But it's, it's absolutely key to uh, identify the interest whether it's uh, history or technology or if this person um, just needs a, a lot of guidance. But if someone is you know, really fascinated about the Spitfire versus the Emil, okay. right, that maybe then drives you to a specific uh, type of game and type of experience uh, that will then uh, encourage their interest. Or if they're interested in strategic scale games in Europe or if they're interested in the Pacific or you know wh- whatever these happen to be. So to identify the interest, so that way you've got the most motivation for them to be involved in the system. But aside from that, I think a little bit of uh, educational theory goes into this as well. You have to understand people's learning styles. Some people need to read ahead. Some people will want a chance to peruse the system. They'll download the living rules and just flip through it because they want to have, they need to read to capture the information. Mm -hmm. Some people will want to uh, watch two or three YouTube videos and see demonstrations. And still other people are going to be, you know, tactile, touch, feel, you know, touch the pieces, uh, feel the board, push things around and try things. So, you know, much like when uh, someone's going to a class, uh, uh, their instructor knowing their educational style is key to having positive learning outcomes. It's, going to, it's the same in wargaming, and, and getting a little bit of a read for the people that you are working with and bringing into the hobby um, can really help facilitate that. I have some friends that I've recently introduced to the hobby that are were, that they all specialize in simulation and modeling for physical models, mm-hmm. and. So these people are fascinated by the modeling side of this. How are the abstractions done? And so they want to look over uh, some of the CRTs and some of the play aids to kind of see how a designer reduces a, a physical world to a, a model that they can, can uh, act on. But uh, you know, everyone's different. So identifying that learning style is really important. So how are you in terms of learning? <laughs> 
how my terms will I mean yeah. uh, I am generally uh, I've got to touch it and uh, uh, exercise something so um, one of the things that you know I will do that I think uh, many people will do is you know you'll the first thing you do before you even read the rules is you start clipping out some of the chits right right <laughs> and you get your hands and you see and you feel and you touch and then you set up the first scenario uh, and then not even having read the rule book necessarily but just from the play aid uh, from the uh, the sequence of play start going through some of those phases uh, and kind of seeing where uh, the, the key events happen. Uh, that then facilitates, you know, later reads uh, of the rules for detail. But, um, you know, I've got to try the system, and, and I will do what, you know, a great many of us do, which is uh, play two-player systems from both sides to exercise mm -hmm. the mechanics, yep. uh, but uh, also um, just to better understand what I am reading. Yeah, that's that. I mean, the good. So you're like me because I I really do <laughs> like people I do like the when people like let me take the game out and um, you know if it's a new game they're introducing me to or if if I'm doing it at home I just take the game out set it up start I you know I can't sit and read more than a couple pages of rules without getting the components out and looking at them and, and kind of pushing them around and it's interesting because I have a friend I have a couple friends actually who are completely the opposite they will you give them the rules it's like a it's like a homework assignment you can just give it to them and they just devour them like one one friend came to visit and I wanted him to, to play a game so I, I uh, you know I had sent him the rules ahead of time and he brought them and they were like like notes on them like on every little pair like you know this 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 <laughs> and like and, and he hadn't had any of the components so he just really went through all the rules and thought, okay, you know, think, thinking about everything very carefully, which is great. I mean, I wish I could do that, but I, I, I don't do it that way. Um, so yes, I, I uh, well, I'm glad that yeah. you and I are of like mind, but uh, I, I do, um, I do think that's important uh, for people who are teaching other people how to play. Uh, don't, if they, if, if people are starting to struggle or it seems like they're not really picking up the way that you're trying to put the game down, then try something different because you're obviously you might not be just uh, teaching them in the way that is best for their learning style that's uh, right and those uh, differences in learning styles are actually a challenge for me a little bit in my activities on the subreddit so the part of reddit that i moderate is uh, uh reddit.com slash r slash hex encounter mm -hmm. and reddit for anyone in the audience that's not familiar with the, the premise is essentially a link aggregator it's just people will throw in relevant, interesting, useful links to each of these subreddits, and other people will upvote them or bury them depending on their usefulness, and things will fall down the feed and age out very quickly. And so when I curate the feed and try and submit content, one thing that I need to be very active to do is, is try and identify um, content, whether it be uh, written discussion reviews, blogs, or uh, tutorial videos that are going to be useful to people. And for me, that can be a little difficult at times since I am not the, the visual learner per se. I don't sit down and need to watch three unboxing videos and two mm -hmm. how it's played videos. Right. So that's just not how I operate. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, find the, I, I think it's great now that we've got so many great people out there producing so much strong content that uh, can all be fed to people of all learning styles so that they can discover what is uh, of interest to them. Yeah, there's a lot of great content out there that uh, it's just, it, I think for me, it, it's really very encouraging. I think the hobby has a lot of people that are spending a lot of time making some great stuff that I think will help the hobbyists, you know, kind of going down the road. So Absolutely. For the last question, um, you know, obviously you've been, uh, you know, spent a lot of time and thought uh, about uh, hooking people into war games. What's the most unusual hook you've ever seen that, uh, you know, got somebody into war games? Well, actually, um, I, I won't go with 
maybe saying unusual, but mm-hmm. the most uh, kind of surprising to me at how effective it is, mm-hmm. is the solitaire hook. Hmm. Um, we, like I mentioned, all of these uh, 20-somethings that got hooked into Euro games when uh, you know they were in college or whatever they were doing and had time right. uh, are now professionals with families and you know game night every friday just doesn't happen anymore sure so there's we're still gamers we still want to do this so we need to you know find games that are more tailored to what we're doing so if you start looking in some of the solitaire gaming communities there's a lot of really interesting things happening in solitaire game design but there's a lot of people um pushing and uh, sharing their experiences with uh war games and uh, people, some certain war games, uh, particularly Butterfield's war games, mm-hmm. you know, anything that's a, with a strong solitaire component, right. just get a lot of exposure to uh, a lot of gamers because uh, they are solitaire suitable and uh, solitaire friendly. There's a great monthly thread on uh, Board Game Geek, uh, solitaire games on your table that just has tremendous write-ups of all the new hotness in the solitaire world. Mm-hmm. So do you think that has something to do with the demographic of, of when people play these certain games? Because that's something I definitely have noticed, too, is that, um, you know, you get the, the, the younger players, uh, you know, have a lot of time. And then you get sort of this period where your, you know, your career is going on. And then I, I've, I've noticed there are older players who, you know, the, the, um, the players who have, you know, maybe kids in college or, you know, are, are sort of, you know, not empty nesters, but maybe some, you know, some of their kids are, are have, have, uh, have graduated or they're just not they're not taking care of small children anymore and they have more time and they, so they're able to go to the game store you know every and on saturday afternoons um but uh but there's this this group of people who may not be able to get to uh to the um to the gatherings regularly and and those are the people that maybe are uh also on reddit right those are the maybe the the sort exactly. of people that they're you know the 30 somethings that are very computer savvy um, and, and it's a normal thing for them because Reddit was around, you know, back when they were in college. And um, now they're they're getting all their information from that and um, sort of pushing that solitaire uh, gaming in that aspect. Yeah. And I guess we can uh, coin the uh, term the war gaming bathtub because, <laughs> uh, you know, your availability to play games uh, early when you're young, you know, you don't have any money. Right. Uh, and so you're not going to be buying the latest uh, MMP monster, but sure. uh, you know if, if you find interest, then you can play. I'm I am squarely in the bottom of that bathtub right now. My my joke is I spend more time clipping chits than playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's fine for me. I, that's how I'm able to experience and, and get my hands on these systems. Yeah. Uh, and then as you were saying, um, you know, as people then uh, get older and get more uh, get a house that supports a war room, right? <laughs> leave the game set up all week. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, then get more time on the games. But yeah, there's I think a a great big pile of people. Uh, that um, have the interest, perhaps even have the resources monetarily to get into it, but don't have the time and, and uh, aren't on Constant World, aren't on Board Game Geek. Uh, but if we can get uh, information on our hobby in front of them, then perhaps they can join us. Yeah, I think that uh, we definitely have the, um, I mean, social media has do- done so much, and, and YouTube, I think YouTube is going to just be a great thing for um uh, for wargaming, I think just because so much sure. of the, so much of, of wargame is aesthetic and 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 uh, and people who pr- produce you know nice videos where people look at these things and say, gosh, you know, I'd really like to check that out. Um, I think that I think we're going to be in good shape. I, I used to worry about the state of the hobby, but uh, um, I've, I've stopped worrying about that now. Oh no, we're on the way up for sure. Yeah.
Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Um, I hope that you get to introduce a lot more uh, people to the hobby, and uh, we will point our listeners to uh, to Reddit uh, slash r slash Hex Encounter. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Had a great time. Good night. The thing I wanted to talk about this time has to do with the release of the digital edition of Twilight Struggle. As I said on the previous episode of Wild Weasel, GMT and Playdeck did an absolutely fantastic job with this port. Uh, the presentation is tremendous. There seem to be no real technical issues of any sort, aside from some, okay, possible obscure bugs regarding, you know, esoteric card combinations. They happen, but I've never actually seen them, but they've been reported. Um, and the most glaring problem, frankly, that I can find is that Roger B. McGowan's name is misspelled in the credits. Um, the game seems to be selling well. In the latest GMT newsletter, they said that in December, they had printed 22,000 more copies of the board game and thought that this would last them a couple of years. Instead, it's now, what, six months later, and they're sold out. I also checked Steam Spy, which is a utility that tracks usage of uh, games on Steam, and according to that you know, admittedly imprecise source, the digital edition of Twilight Struggle has sold over 20,000 copies since its release a little over two months ago. Uh, that's great for a nerdy war game about a bunch of events that happened over 25 years ago, and I think it shows how accessible a good game can be as a PC port if the development is in the right hands. But it got me wondering about the way new people come into the hobby, especially those coming from a primarily computer gaming background. I was particularly struck by one commenter who listens to Three Moves Ahead, which is another podcast I'm on. And in the context of an episode about Twilight Struggle in the digital edition, who was responding to the question of how friendly he felt the digital edition is to someone new to the game. Uh, so he, or at least I presume he's male, uh, said as quote, I think it's good, but not great. I'd heard of the game, but had never actually seen it. I started by reading the rulebook and playing the tutorial. That gave me a good idea of the mechanics of the game, but no clue as to why I'd choose one action or another. After badly losing a couple of games, I went looking for some general information on the game and found out about Twilight Strategy. After reading that site and playing a few more games, I feel that I've got a pretty decent handle on the game now and have managed to beat the AI a few times. First of all, uh, kudos to that person for actually going out and reading the rulebook prior to playing the tutorial. I don't think there are many people who did that uh, who weren't already owners of the board game, but uh, great job. Um, I think it's actually more than you can expect of almost all the players. Uh, my response to the last part is that I feel that this is kind of the point of playing the game, you know, getting a handle on the strategies and things like that. Um, and you do that by exploring the imaginative space of the game. Um, by doing that, you learn the system and the strategy. Um, I find that they're really inseparable, inseparable parts of the same reward of gaming, at least they are for me. But another person responded in the same vein uh, with some clarification by saying, I don't expect it to teach me every nuance of the strategic model. Half of the fun of a strategy game is figuring out those on your own, which I agree with, by the way, to continue. What would be nice, though, was if I had some sense after playing the tutorial of what sorts of things would make for a good move on the first round. I have to start by placing alignment points. For instance, what are the pros and cons of dumping them all into a couple of countries versus spreading them around? What are some good early cards I should be keeping an eye out for, and why are they significant? What are some tells I can use to spot when my opponent is building towards a big move in one region? Again, I would say that the first best move is the one you figure out after making a bunch of first moves. I wonder if this need for more immediate instruction is something new, 
or frankly, whether we've always had this in one form or another, such as when the general would publish detailed defenses for the Russian campaign, and then people would spend years trying to break them down. Uh, but it still feels like newer gamers expect their games to be more accessible from the standpoint of being able to be good at them immediately. Now, I've gotten the same response from people who play Euros, and I wonder if this is not the same population, actually, uh, who complain that Twilight Struggle isn't fun because you have to, quote, know the cards, so to speak. Um, on one hand, I figure, um, I find that figuring out the strategy against friends is among the best parts of learning a new game. But then I also remember eagerly reading the designer's notes in old board games in the hope that they would give me some tips on how to play. Of course, this is because I had no one else to play a lot of these games against, and I probably would have much preferred figuring them out with somebody else. But when you don't have those people around, you feel the lack of outside help, which might be the perspective that new gamers are coming from when they play games like Twilight Struggle after a background in computer games. So it's great to see sites like twilightstrategy.com. I encourage people who haven't played the game or who are still looking for tips um, to try it out, twilightstrategy.com. So, you know, and I point that out to players who are frustrated at being lost in terms of what to do in a game of Twilight Struggle. But for people who do that, that's less discussion and exploration that those players can have with their friends about game strategy, um, which admittedly is probably what those people would prefer anyway. So I don't know. Um, overall, I think good digital ports of good board war games are a big boost to the hobby, and I only hope for more. I certainly don't want to sound like I'm against more people being exposed to great games because I think there are a lot of people out there who are gamers, but they just don't know it yet, uh, which is why I think it's important to think about how, now that the door to the hobby is getting wider and wider through more communication, the internet, things like that, we can help people through while still teaching them the things that we find important in our opponents. And by no means should anybody think that this is a, you know exclusively an online thing. Um, I'm going to link to an absolutely hilarious episode that was posted on Board Game Geek about a person who went to an acquaintance's house to play Combat Commander. So I'll let you read that. But um, I've been extremely lucky to have some outstanding people in my local area uh, that I really look forward to playing with each time. I look forward to seeing them and playing with them as much as I look forward to the game. Um, and I want more people in the hobby like that. Uh, and that's another reason I wanted to have Jeff on the show, and I'm glad that he came on. So I guess the, sum, the uh, way to sum this up is, well, good gaming, everybody. And that's the end of this episode. Join me next time for more news, an interview with a game designer, and some thoughts on... You know, I'm not sure yet. We'll figure that out. I'll think of something interesting, or at least hopefully interesting. Until then, please join me next time. This has been Wild Weasel, number five.